Hello, welcome to the Irish History Walks podcast. My name is Patrick Walsh and I live in Ireland, more specifically Wicklow. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be exploring the history of Wicklow and wherever else is within driving distance and not too far away. So Dublin, Wexford, Kildare. I'll be exploring some of our lesser known history that could be hidden right on your doorstep. In this podcast, I'm going to check out Rathgall Hillfort and some ringforts or raths on and around Ballycumber Hill in South Wicklow. Once again, before we start, I'd like to point out that I am not a historian, so this podcast should not be used as an academic reference. Whilst I strive to make my podcasts as historically accurate as possible, the making of this podcast is as much a learning process for me as it is anybody else. So get in touch if I get anything wrong. Before I talk about my trip to Rathgall Hillfort, I'm going to talk a little about the Iron Age people now and how their lives had changed since the earlier Neolithic period or New Stone Age I spoke about in a previous podcast. The Stone Age in Ireland really is anything before 2500 BC. The Bronze Age 2500 to 500 BC and the Iron Age 500 BC to 400 AD. The Iron Age was ushered in by the Celts' arrival in Ireland from Europe. They were a people that used iron in their day-to-day lives, so naturally, tribes across Ireland began making tools and weapons from iron and steel, as opposed to flint or bronze. You are probably familiar with the beautiful Celtic metal artwork and jewellery, which is to this day a huge part of our national identity and culture. Iron tools and weapons were harder and more durable than their flint or bronze equivalents and would have changed the daily lives of everybody. Why did it take such a long time for the human race to begin working with iron 2,000 years after bronze metalworking had been discovered, you might ask? Well, bronze is mostly an alloy of copper and tin, you see, and melts at a relatively low temperature, about 950 degrees Celsius. Iron, more specifically steel, is made by heating iron with carbon. It melts at a much higher temperature, around 1,370 degrees. Wow, that's pretty hot. And is therefore harder to melt and pour. The whole reason the Bronze Age precedes the Iron Age is because humanity hadn't the know-how to build furnaces capable of producing that incredibly hot steel. At the onset of the Iron Age, we see the introduction of the Bloomery Furnace, a clay tube sort of, filled with charcoal, as opposed to its Bronze Age equivalent, a pit in the ground lined with clay basically. You also need more advanced blacksmithing tools to work the metal. Iron Age blacksmiths would have made swords by heating a bar of iron over a fire. When the iron was white hot, the smith rested the bar on an anvil, hammering away at it in order to form whatever tool was needed. Smiths worked with tongs, hammers, and if making a sword, would have used metal files to smooth off and sharpen the edge once they had beaten it into shape. Being able to work iron allowed for advances in farming, which really changed people's lives, especially the ability to make wooden ploughs with iron tips pulled by oxen. This allows you to plough much larger areas of land by cutting through heavier soil. Although there were Bronze Age ploughs, 
most people would have still relied on Stone Age tools to literally dig up the land with stone or wooden tools. Imagine how time-consuming that must have been. A certain Monty Python sketch from the Holy Grail comes to mind. If you know it, you know. (laughs) Being able to farm on a much larger scale allowed people to produce more food than they needed, and that enabled people to trade in a way that they hadn't done before. Although we know that Bronze Age people traded goods and exchanged beads, shells and so on, it is during the Iron Age that we see the introduction of currency. We also know that currency, combined with increasing trade and farming on a grander scale, brought about by the Celts settling an island, led people to live in and build much larger settlements, and that is where we see the introduction of the hill fort. It is thought that the Celts brought the hill fort to Ireland, although the fort at Rathgall is thought to be much older. Nothing is ever straightforward, is it? Just to be clear, a hill fort is not the same thing as a ring fort or rath. Hill forts are much larger, perhaps more sophisticated and better defended. They were constructed by Celtic nobles because obviously you need power, influence and goods to trade in order to build them. The remains at Rathgall are absolutely spectacular. I visited on a cold winter's day, glistening frost crunched under my feet and the mountains in the distance with their white snow-capped peaks were very Mount Fuji-like, if you know what I mean. The hill fort is so intact, you can see the multiple ramparts as you enter from the car park. The first and outer ring that you pass, walking into the fort, is actually Neolithic and was probably built for ceremonial purposes and isn't actually a fortification at all. The second and third rings date back to the Bronze Age. You could say they are the first actual fortifications built, if you like, and the final ring is medieval. Whilst I walked around this inner stone medieval ring, I did find a sort of weird stone chamber, inaccessible from inside, or so it seemed. For the life of me, I couldn't find out what it was. It isn't even visible on diagrams of the site, and there is no mention of it on the tourist board. You know, I joked, maybe it was a toilet, you know? (laughs) The first of the Bronze Age rings that surrounds the inner cashel, or ring made of stone, is massive and has a really cool oak tree growing on it. The whole site is so picturesque. It is thought that maybe the stone facing on this ring or embankment was possibly a later addition, built during the medieval period, perhaps purely for stylistic reasons, to create a more spectacular enclosure for the inner cashel. Who really knows? It was in this innermost early Bronze Age enclosure, however, that evidence of metalworking was discovered alongside a roundhouse and a cemetery. Spooky. A large number of both bronze and Iron Age artefacts were discovered at this site, which is unmatched in quantity anywhere else in Ireland. Incredible examples of pottery were discovered, glass beads imported from Europe, possibly used as a form of currency, which is absolutely insane, all things considered. Whoever lived in this hill fort must have been incredibly wealthy. I mean, it's not like you can just order them online. Somebody would have had to have transported them to rural Ireland by hand. Unless, of course, they were family heirlooms passed down through the generations. 
Or maybe they were left here by Celts who inhabited the fort at a later date. A large number of clay casting moulds for various tools, amongst them a large spearhead, were also discovered. Some serious bling there. Although humanity had discovered the ability to work bronze, truth be told, only the seriously wealthy could afford to make use of it, either as jewellery or as a material to make tools. After Rathgal's initial period of occupation during the Bronze Age, the site was abandoned for maybe 500 years or so. Archaeology shows that during the 2nd or 3rd century AD, proof of iron smelting was found at the site. I guess excellent fortifications such as these are never truly abandoned forever. I then took a 20-minute drive down the road to Ballycumba Hill to visit two ring forts. As cool as Rathgall was, I had to combine it with a trip elsewhere. I needed to stretch my legs and have myself a little adventure. It's become an addiction now. There are multiple walks near Tinahili, based around the Wicklow Way, and the Ballycumber Loop is one of them. The walk is supposed to take three and a half hours, but I think you'd have to be an experienced walker and quite fit in order to do it in that time. I cut out a significant portion of the loop by parking at an alternate location, and once you factor in getting lost, which, if you have as poor a sense of direction as me, you will do at some point. Uh, three and a half hours is a bit optimistic. You'll probably be out for four and a half at least. Before I talk about my walk, I should explain what a ring fort is and how it differs from a hill fort. A rath or ring fort is essentially an enclosed farmstead or fortification which can also double up as an animal stockade. To be honest, they are very like hill forts, really, just a lot smaller. So, ring forts are all over Ireland, with over 40,000 examples recorded. Once upon a time, they were probably over 50,000. It's very hard to precisely date when ring forts started to appear in Ireland. There are so many theories and archaeological evidence is hard to come by. Many say during the Iron Age, but truth be told, the tradition of building ring forts continued well beyond that. Scientific evidence suggests that the majority were built during the early Christian period, between 600 AD to 900. This is based upon radiocarbon and tree ring dating from excavated ring fort sites. There has always been an element of mystery surrounding Ireland's ring forts, and this has led to some pretty cool folklore. Raths in Ireland are also known as fairy rings, and are said to be the homes of mythological creatures such as fairies, leprechauns, and even giants. It is said that the forts were enchanted with the magic of the druids, and the fairies were protected within them. I'll have to be careful when checking them out then. Make sure I knock beforehand. So, what are the features of a ring fort? Typically, they have an enclosed bank with a deep ditch or foss on its outside. The bank, when newly built, would have had a tight row of timber posts on top, or a wattle and door fence, or, if materials were hard to come by, a strong blackthorn or whitethorn hedge making it difficult to climb over. This would have been important in order to keep marauding animals out, like wolves for example, from attacking the family home or livestock if the Wrath were an enclosure for animals. The Wrath also would have provided protection against cattle raiders, 
as well as burglars and any other joker or opportunist, shall we say. In regions with abundant stone, a variant of the ring fort, known as a cashel, something I mentioned earlier, was built. It differs from the conventional ring fort in that it is a stone enclosure instead of the more common earthen bank, so very like the innermost ring at Rathgal. Raths are usually sited on a rise, on free-draining soil. You don't want your home to gradually turn into one big pond. Often they have an underground chamber, referred to as a souterrain, located within the ring. The souterrain could have acted as a place of refuge, and intact souterrains sometimes have drop holes, twists and bends within the central chamber, nooks and crannies to sleep and hide in. As cool as that sounds though, the majority were probably used as storage areas for perishable foods. Being underground, they would have maintained a constant temperature of about 4 degrees Celsius. Maybe I should ditch my refrigerator and build one in my garden, you know? Cut down on the old electricity bill. I'm getting a bit nerdy now, but honestly, I can't resist. Although the ring forts I have seen near me all have the one ring, they are actually classified based on the number of enclosing banks or rings that they have. A ring fort with one bank and ditch is described as univillate, one with two banks and ditches is bivillate, with three elements, trivillate or multivillate. I hope I pronounced all of that correctly. It is generally accepted that the more banks and ditches the ring fort has, the higher the status of its owner. The chief of the tribe, is thought to have resided in the more extensive multivillate examples, whilst the chiefs with lower status lived in the single-ringed forts. <laughs> you can imagine the chiefs at social gatherings, can't you? How many rings do you have? Oh, only one. Now we know what a ring fort is, let me tell you about my quest to find one. Two, in fact, sorry. I really enjoyed my walk around the Ballycumber Hill. I actually parked not far from the Grouse Lodge, following the blue signs around the loop. One word of warning, the route is not very well signposted. It seems so at first, and for then some reason the signage gets progressively worse. One of the things that made the walk so enjoyable was the constantly changing landscape around you. Crossing over a small ford not far from the location I parked at, I immediately found myself walking through a sort of murky, temperate rainforest. I know that seems incredible, you don't really associate Ireland with rainforests, but honestly, rainforests don't have to be tropical, I'm not making it up. The air felt damp, and there were what looked like willow trees lining the Wicklow Way, making it look like a country drive up to some stately home. Leaving this slightly swampy wooded area, the swamps of Dagobah, should I say, I found myself on the Ballycumber hillside. The hillside was really scruffy here, being covered in a blanket of bracken. For some reason, I decided to go hunting for the wrath, traipsing into the squelchy, boggy mire, despite the fact that it was visible via Google Earth and I could easily work it out. In the end, the wrath was just a bit further up the path in an open area. Unmissable, really. The wrath had a sort of mythical feel. Growing out of the embankment, there was this old silvery tree, stunted and covered in nobbles. Maybe that's where the fairies live, a sort of magical apartment complex. 
the whole area was in remarkably good condition. There weren't any cowpats anywhere, or evidence of sheep keeping the grass down. Maybe there is something behind the fairy tales of old. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any evidence of a souterrain. I couldn't help but wonder whether there was any archaeology to be found. These days, you can use ground-penetrating radar to check out what lies under the ground. Imagine if I was standing on pottery without realising, or coins perhaps, how cool is that? Having poked around for a while, whilst taking plenty of photographs, of course, I continued along the Wicklow Way. The colours on the hillside were absolutely beautiful. A blend of golden browns and greens, purples even, as I stared across the hillside over to a birch woodland. I tried taking a photograph, but I just couldn't capture it. Maybe if I mess with a picture on Photoshop, I can do something. The trail led us into this birch forest, and between the trees, paths run, the remnants of some laneway or road lined with stones. It was so amazing, or at least it was until my trusty research assistant realised we were lost. After a load of humming and harring, combined with a quick rest and an egg sandwich, we were back on track. In the end, we abandoned the signs and just relied on Google Maps. Luckily, mine still had internet signal and could locate me in real time, so that was a big help. The trail took us up a hillside covered in bracken. Horses grazing freely looked on. I don't get why they were so fixated on us. They can't have been scared. We were about half a mile away. Maybe they were just bored. By the way, the amount of dung horses produce is unreal, but never mind. Not long later, the bracken turned to heather, and I have to say, it was a shame I wasn't walking up here just a few months earlier, because the whole hillside would have been a sea of purple. Reaching the summit, the hillside turned into dark, murky bog. Luckily, there were railway sleepers to walk across. You could almost imagine a hand reaching up out of the black ooze and grabbing my ankle as I walked along. Towards the end of the walk, I reached the second wrath. It was entirely covered in bracken. You could make out the embankment, but you couldn't explore the monument internally. But at least you can still see it. There was apparently evidence of a souterrain, but it wasn't visible through the undergrowth. That brings to an end this series. It won't be the end of my podcasting, however. I'll be back. I really enjoyed making these episodes, so thank you to everybody that's come along for the ride. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Patrick Walsh. I also provided the musical score, took care of mixing and so on. But shout out to Pixabay Sounds and Sound Bible, Mike Koenig and so on, for all the stock sound effects.